30, John 19, verse 30. As we continue to think about the great sacrifice that Jesus made, the mission he fulfilled at Calvary. So we're looking at one verse there, verse 30. Now there are seven words that Jesus spoke from the cross. And we're looking at what I believe to be the sixth word that he spoke from the cross. Now, I'm aware of the fact that we, we need a word from Jesus. If you look at the words that Jesus spoke from the cross, and it truly is amazing that he spoke from the cross. Crucifixion is basically death by suffocation. You're struggling there, the, the one being crucified, struggling to survive. I would think the last thing on their mind would be trying to muster enough breath to speak in that situation. But nevertheless, Jesus did speak. His first words from the cross were, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Those words are an appeal to the Father to forgive those who were carrying out this act of torture. Jesus spoke words of assurance from the cross. If you'll remember, Jesus was crucified between two thieves. The one thief had the attitude of many of the people around the cross. Mocking and scorning and ridiculing the Lord Jesus. But the one thief demonstrated repentance. And the words that Jesus spoke to that thief are words of assurance. Jesus, nailed to the cross, tells the thief, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Words that are highly instructive for us and encouraging, but really to the thief. Then there are words of affection that Jesus spoke. There his mother, there the disciple, the beloved disciple John. Jesus says, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. Words of affection. Jesus is making sure that his mother is cared for following his death. And it goes on. There are words of agony. Jesus said, I thirst, instructive concerning his humanity, and full of, uh, I don't know, just causing us to ponder the fact that Jesus was 100% man and 100% God as he died on that cross. And then eventually he, 
he speaks words of acceptance. The last words of Jesus on the cross, Father, into thy hands, I commit my spirit. We have the words of dereliction, where he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But the word I want to look at today is one word. And here it is in John 30. It's also mentioned or used in verse 28 of the same chapter. John 19, verse 30. We'll let our eyes fall there. The Bible says, therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That's the word. That's the word that we need to hear this morning. The Greeks prided themselves on using one word, but encapsulating a great deal of meaning in one word. They do that here. Here it is. It is finished. The word in the Greek is one, tetelestai. Tetelestai. And if you'll notice, there in the verse, when Jesus says it is finished, there is an exclamation mark. Tetelestai. This word is used all the time in that culture. It was used... um, of a builder completing a project. He'd complete his building, and what would he say? To Telestai. It was used in a world of accounting. Somebody pays off a debt. Somebody pays their taxes. They've actually found these tax receipts with the word to Telestai. Written on those receipts. Paid in full. The payments are complete. uh, Artists would use it. They'd paint their masterpiece. And when they're done, they step back and exclaim, Tetelestai. It's really a word that has within it the, the concept of hope, joy, the fact that this, this work is now complete. And we have it right here. Jesus on the cross, as he is dying on the cross, exclaims, it is is finished. Now, when I was thinking about this, I wanted to make sure that we all understand that it ain't I. Oh, let me explain. It ain't I. It's Jesus isn't saying I am finished. I'm sure there were a number of people at the cross that day who said, look at that guy. Looks like he's finished. Look like he's through. Nothing going to happen here. He's calling for Elijah. Elijah ain't going to come. 
It ain't I. It is what Jesus was involved with at that time. And that is through his sacrificial death, bringing salvation. Bringing the hope of eternal life to those who would respond to him in faith. And what he is referring to is that work, that work on the cross. It has the note of finality to it. Yes, because that death is being accomplished. So the word means to bring to completion. Now, one other thing before we make our points is this, that not only is this a completed work, but this is a work that has been completed that has and will keep on bringing results. So it's a work that's done in the past. They call it a perfect tense in the original language. It's something that's done at a point in time but continues to bring forth fruit. And that's especially helpful for you and I who lived 2,000 years this side of the cross. The Bible says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So, what was accomplished at the cross? I'm going to give us four things this morning that are in this cry of victory. It is finished. This is the cry of a victorious warrior more than it is a cry of a unsuspecting victim. So what, what does tetelestai mean here? All right, number one, tetelestai means that Jesus met all the demands of the law then suffered the consequences of those of us who broke the law. So Jesus met all the demands of the law in his life. When he was young, when he was old, during his earthly ministry, he met all the demands. When he was young, he lived with his mom and dad. And what did he do? He honored his father and mother. That's what he did. He never sinned. He always had a heart for his father. He always wanted to be about his father's business. But he never sinned as a youngster. And then when it was time for him to begin his public ministry, he never sinned. In fact, Jesus fulfilled the law. He fulfilled every aspect of the law. He never failed in fulfilling the law or keeping the law. 
And in so doing, he did what you and I could never do. And that is keep the law. We're all flawed. We're depraved. We're sinful. We've broken the law. We've broken the law because our hearts aren't completely yielded over to God. We've broken the law because we're wayward. Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. The idea there is we're rebellious against God. We're in rebellion against him. But Jesus came and he kept the law. He never deviated from keeping the law. And it's interesting, the one who kept it perfectly, as uh, what, what did John the Baptist say? He is the lamb without spot or without blemish. That's Jesus. The one who kept the law bore our sin and then suffered the consequences that we deserved for our law-breaking lives. We rejoice today that Jesus fulfilled the law, that he met the demands of the law for you and I. And then how did he cap off his life? I mean, all his life, he's met the demands of the law. And then we read that he was crucified right there in verse 16 of the same chapter. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. Crucified on the cross, his obedient life, his keeping of the law is culminated in his obedience unto death. He was obedient unto death. And for this, we rejoice. We give him praise because on the cross, when Jesus cried to tell us die, he means I have kept the law and he is offering the only sacrifice that would save man from sin. Over in Philippians, there's a few verses there in the New Testament on law keeping. And I want to. I want to point out just a couple to you this morning. Philippians, right there in verse, well, chapter 3, right here. This is Paul's testimony, and you know what a religious zealot Paul was. But notice in his own, this is his, his own mini autobiography right here. And if we pick it up in verse 8, just he is reflecting on his life before and after Christ. And notice verse 8, more than that, he says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Now, a good part of Paul's life before Jesus was spent trying to please the Father. But he was missing the mark day in and day out. Notice this in verse 9. 
Paul goes on to say, and may be found in him. Here's the point right here. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Self-righteousness does not save. We do not preach a self-salvation. We're not trying to accumulate more good works than we already have bad works in order to be accepted by God. That is futile. What we do is recognize the perfection of Christ, the righteousness of Christ. And we understand that when he died on the cross, he took our sin in his body. When we believe in him, when we trust that sacrifice, his righteousness is transferred. It's imputed. It's declared over us. No longer do I have to stand in my own filthy rags of self-righteousness. But I am standing before him in the righteousness of Jesus. That is a righteousness that is declared over us when we trust Christ as our Lord and Savior. And then over in Romans 10 and verse 4. There's a, this verse is instructive on God's righteousness. Very interesting here. He says, Paul that is, for Christ is the end of the law. For righteousness to everyone who believes. That's good news. We are not we are not living according to the law because we could never live that life perfectly, but Christ did live it perfectly. And when we trust him, we receive the blessing of his righteousness in our lives. We don't have to live in our own righteousness. We don't have to be burdened with the guilt of sin because we are living according to the righteousness of Christ. Secondly, not only did Jesus fulfill the law and the demands of the law, but when Jesus cried out to Telestai, he was saying that he had met, that he had met the demands for justice that of God's expectation for justice. Jesus met that demand. You know, sin has to be judged. And there at the cross, Jesus was judged for our sin. Bible calls it propitiation. 
that Jesus became the propitiation for our sin. What's that mean? It just means that Jesus stood in that place of judgment on man's sin. Him who knew no sin, he who knew no sin became sin, took upon himself our sin, and then bore the judgment of his father on the cross. So he suffered the consequences for our sin, for our law-breaking. And we rejoice in that. We've been delivered from darkness. We've been delivered from hell. We no longer face eternity in a state of separation from God. But we have the promise of eternal life. We have the promise that one day when this life is over, we will be in the next life with Jesus, with the angels. We will enjoy a new heaven and a new earth, according to the apostle Peter. So Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. The picture of that is the darkness that came over that region, that part of the world from noon to three o'clock. There Jesus is dying in agony and the Bible says that darkness came over. It's as though God the Father reached out, touched the sun and the lights went out. That darkness tells us that Jesus was dying for us, for our sin. He was taking his, our sin upon himself and the father turns away. Jesus exclaimed, Father, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God had turned his back. Holy God, how does he look upon sin? Well, Jesus Jesus stood in our place and absorbed the judgment on sin. Thirdly, tetelestai means that all the types in the Old Testament are fulfilled. Oh, just three of them. The ark. Which one? Noah's ark. It's a type of Jesus. In the ark, Noah and his family were what? Safe. Outside the ark, everybody was what? On their own. Jesus is a type of ark. Yes, he is. In Christ, and that's one of Paul's favorite terms. In Christ, we're what? We're safe. In Christ, we are safe. In Christ, we escape the wrath of God. The judgment of God that's coming on the whole earth. Another type, remember the, man, the manna in the wilderness, the children of Israel out there in the wilderness, longing for Egypt, right? They started out so beautifully. Let's get out of here. You know, in fact, you, you read that part where God heard their cry and God says, I'm going to send a deliverer and God raised up Moses. And then God had to raise up Aaron because Moses was a little unsure of himself, but God heard their cry and God acted and God delivered and God 
got him out of Egypt and he took him out into the wilderness and God was uh, a cloud by day and a fire by night. And he was the heating, he was the cooling, he was taking care of the people and he'd feed them manna. Manna is a type of Christ. Jesus is our manna. He is that which comes from heaven. Just read John 6. Jesus came down from heaven and we feast on him. Another type. Remember the bronze serpent in the wilderness? The people have been complaining and then they found themselves in the midst of a bunch of vipers and snakes. Remember that? They're all getting... All being bitten and they've got this uh, poison uh, coursing through their veins and they're dying. And Moses is pulling his hair out. He's just, God, what are we going to do here? This is awful. And God says, fashion a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, raise it up and tell the people, look and live. That's how simple the gospel is. Look and live. And then Jesus references that in John 3. Look and live. He said, even as the serpent was raised in the wilderness, he said, the son of man will be raised up. And the whole implication there is that when you look to Jesus, you live. He's the only one who can impart true life and the forgiveness of sin. He's the only one who can save. So that's enough for the types. But not only were the types fulfilled, but also the prophecies. How many prophecies are in the Old Testament concerning Jesus and his life and death? How many? Well, there's probably, there's probably a good 50, probably 54 exactly. And if there, you add references, there's a couple hundred, 300. But if you just take the 54 prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament, these prophecies are written 500 years before he lived. A thousand years before he lived, if you look at Psalm 22, you can go all the way back to Genesis. The seed of the woman, he'll bruise his heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. These prophecies, every prophecy, when Jesus cried to Telestai, Jesus was saying that every prophecy in the Old Testament has been fulfilled. Did you know Psalm 22 is written about the Messiah that would come and he would be crucified? And at the time of writing, crucifixion wasn't a thing. Crucifixion didn't come around till three, 400 BC. How about that? I tell you what, before you, before you reject Jesus, if there's somebody here that's an unbeliever, before you reject Jesus, at least do your homework. Look at the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. That's not accidental. That's not circumstantial. This is historical. This is real. This is verified. And then not only the prophecies, one more thing, the promises, all the promises are fulfilled. Go to 2 Corinthians 1. And we are, just stay with me just a little bit longer. We're about there. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. The promises of God, have you thought about that? Have you thought about how sweet, how dear, how precious the promises of God are? 
to our lives. All the promises right here. Verse 20, 2 Corinthians 1. For as many as are the promises of God. Paul doesn't even number them. He just says as many as there are. In him and the him there is Jesus. They are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. So he's talking about the promises of God. He's encouraging these Corinthians. And he's saying the promises of God are true. All of them are true. And God keeps his promises. And the reason God keeps his promises is because Jesus went to the cross. He suffered. He died. And he cried out to die on the cross. He meant by that that all the types of the Old Testament were fulfilled in him. He meant that all the prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled in him. He meant that all the promises of the Bible were fulfilled in him, in that one saving act. What are those promises? Well, God promises a lot of things. He promises peace. How many of you have the peace that passes understanding? He promises you faith. He'll encourage your faith. You know, you go through a, you get some bad news or, or something, something, you go through some difficulty. You continue to believe and trust Christ even through the hard times. God promises peace. He promises faith and encouragement. He promises wisdom to us. These are precious promises and they're all made good to the believer because of the crucifixion of Jesus. And we have an exclamation mark as far as the goodness and the effectiveness of those promises when Jesus says to tell us die. And then lastly, when Jesus said to tell us die, he meant that Satan, sin, and death had been dealt with. Jesus at the cross stripped Satan, sin, and death of their power. I'm so happy. I mean, do you know what a character Satan is? His demons? He's a deceiver. He's a liar. He's an accuser of the brethren. We need, to, we need to believe what the word of God says about us and just, uh, you know, the enemy wants to tell you about our past or your past. When he does that, we just need to make sure he knows his future because he's a defeated foe. Satan is a defeated foe. Now, right here in 1 Corinthians 15. I like this. This is the resurrection chapter, by the way. And this is what Paul says. He says, oh, death, where's your victory? He's, he's, uh, he's speaking some truth here. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this is all about. To die is a word of victory. 
If Christ could utter that on the cross in his dying moments, you and I can receive that encouragement today and live by the victory that he secured for us 2,000 years ago. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. God's given us the victory to live it out. And it may not look victorious. It doesn't have to. What's the Bible say? Faith is a victory. That overcomes the world. Doesn't say faith is, brings the victory. Says faith is the victory. So the victory that overcomes the world is you believing in the worst of circumstances. It's you believing when you're about to take your last breath. It's you believing when you've got the bad report. It's you believing in Jesus come what may. Because he's got you. And he's got you and I for all eternity. Now, a while ago we mentioned that the word tetelestai was meant, was used in the area of building. Project completed, tetelestai. I want you to know that on the cross, Jesus built a bridge for you and I to escape sin And ultimately go to heaven. And it was two pieces of wood. It was one vertical pointing to heaven to remind us that's where Jesus came from. And it was a crossbar that always speaks to us concerning the wideness of God's love for us. So there at the cross we have intersecting God's holiness and God's love imperfection and speaking to us is Jesus to tell us die. There is victory at the cross. We also talked about this, the fact that the word is used in accounting, a debt's paid to tell us die. I want you to think of this. Whenever you see the cross, whenever you read these scriptures, think of this. Think of the debt that you and I owed that could have never been paid. We could never pay it. Our sin debt could never be paid. Listen, we can't even pay down our debt. We can't do that. But at the cross, Jesus says, I'll take care of that for you to tell us die. And he paid our full sin debt. We owe nothing. We just received his perfect work done for us at the cross, and we are free at last. And then we said the, the word could be used for an artist. They finished that painting to tell us die. They're done. I want you to think of that setting. Jesus dying on the cross, two thieves. Darkness, Roman soldiers, disciples, uh, where are they? Women at a distance. Now one was there, John. Think of that scene and fix it in your mind. 
Let me ask you this. Is there anything you could do to improve on that scene? If I gave you a colored pencil, would you like to go up and take, uh, take that artist's masterpiece and would you improve on it by scribbling a little bit of what you do on that? No. On that, you're not going to put anything on that canvas that's going to help you. In fact, when we try to add to it, what do we do? We ruin it. I mean, nobody's going nobody's gonna to go to a Rembrandt or a Van Gogh or any of those other artists and, and, and scribble on their painting. No, it's a masterpiece. I want you to know this morning that the cross is a masterpiece of God. And we should observe it, but more than that, we should trust what Christ did. And we should say to Telestai, I have nothing more to add But I will receive his finished work on my behalf and I will live accordingly. That's what's important today. I'm afraid too often we try to add to what God's already done. No adding to it. No improving that. Just walk in it. Love him. Trust him. Commit your life to him. Father in heaven, thank you for the day. Thank you for this time together. Lord, thank you for that word to tell us die. We're so thankful it, it is finished. And we love our Lord Jesus as we pray in his name. Amen.